right in here. Verse number 14, it says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field upon thy belly, shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou also uh, sh- shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Just to bring you up to speed, here's what has happened. God made all things, and all things were good. God places man in a garden, and it's a good garden. Adam is there, and Adam's got one rule. It's to not eat of one particular tree. Adam gets a wife, and they got a perfect marriage, a perfect life. Everything is going hunky-dory. They don't have to sweat yet. They don't have the thorns and the thistles or the sicknesses. They haven't even had a prayer request yet, right? Not a thing. All they've gotten to do is to simply enjoy God, His presence, His fellowship, His creation, and it's been designed for them to enjoy God and to know God. But in this, the serpent comes in chapter 3 and tempts Eve. Eve succumbs. She chooses to eat of something that she knew she was not supposed to and then gives to her husband and he eats and he knew he was not supposed to. Both of them fail, not just as image bearers of God, but as husband and as wife, as man and as woman. And ultimately though, Adam the federal head now sins and plunges all of humanity and all of creation into a state of, of curse from sin and separation from God. And now everything that is good is now going to slowly become worse and worse and worse. Evolution today teaches that naturally, if things are evolving to be better, that they would naturally be getting better. However, if we look around, things are not getting better, are they? Not whatsoever. Nothing's getting better. If we were getting better, I could jump a whole lot higher than what I can. Y'all want to see how I can jump? I hope you didn't blink. It was real high, right? You just missed it, right? Now think about this. We're not, we're not watching a world getting better and better. We're watching a world getting worse and worse. Morally, physically, the world is not getting any better, right? I mean, they're talking about record, whether you want to believe in, in a global warming or not, right? I just saw it snow like two days ago, okay? So you can believe what you want. i just seen snow, all right? Uh, nevertheless, we're watching the physical world get worse and worse. Clearly, what we're seeing is the effect of a fallen world. A fallen world. A fallen people. Now, in this, though, immediately after sin takes place, Adam and Eve, they look at each other and they realize we're naked. Now, they were naked before, but now they see what real nakedness is. They are full of sin. They are full of shame. They sow fig leaves together and they then hear the voice of God and they go to hide themselves from Him. He then questions Adam. He says, where art thou? Not because he didn't know where he was, but he's drawing him back to repent. He is giving him opportune time to do so. This is what God does. It's who God is. Everything that God does is done by His gracious hand. It is by the abundance of His infinite mercy being poured out upon sinful man. 
And now then Adam says, well, I heard your voice, but I'm hiding because I was naked and, and I was afraid. And then God says, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? I command you not to. And, and Adam then says, well, the woman that you gave to be with me, right, she gave. So he says, not only is it my wife's fault, but it's your fault because you gave her to me, right? She's defective. Give me another one, right? I mean, it's the idea of, look, it's, 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 not, it's not my fault. I didn't do this. Blame her, even you that, that gave her to me. I'm innocent here. This was a, a mistake here. And then goes to her and says unto her, is, what is this that thou have done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. So she goes, well, it was a snake's fault. Snakes look around me, right? Now here's we get to verse 14. First of all, there's going to be over the next five verses through verse 19, we're going to see the judgment upon the serpent, upon the woman, and upon the man. All right, Upon essentially Satan, Eve, then Adam, he saves in some ways the worst for last. Adam being the federal head, the first image bearer of, of God who is designed to keep everything perfectly in an order to literally live in this sort of tabernacle of the Garden of Eden to keep it, to, to not necessarily dress it in the sense of making sure there are no thorns and thistles, but to keep it pure by obeying God by faith. And he doesn't hold up to that. But let's first of all look tonight. Judgment upon the serpent. And this one's going to take, take, take a bit here, okay? Verses 14 and 15. First of all, notice this. A couple of things here. This isn't in your notes. I just noticed this as we looked at this. It says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent. This is important. I didn't have it in your notes. The Lord, Lord kind of put me in this here. Go back to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said... Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. If you remember back, oh, I don't know, it feels like a month or two ago when we addressed, uh, addressed verse number one. All throughout the creation account, we have seen Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. For the reason that He is the Lord God. The sovereign ruler, the one true God, the only God. It demonstrates His power, His might, His authority, all of His attributes, all of who He is together. Now, the important part is that God in His Word and the author of Genesis here, Moses, is putting to the emphasis that there is no other God except for this God who is made, formed in fashion, and spoken His creation into existence, and now uh, has fellowship with His created people, meaning Adam and Eve. But notice, what does the serpent do? The serpent speaks. And he says, Yea, hath God said. And the important part of that is because this Satan certainly knows that God is God, but he does not yield to his lordship. He does not yield to his authority. He does not yield to him being in charge. He does not desire. Matter of fact, it was Satan who desired to be uh, like God or above God, to be uh, higher uh, than, than God. And so this is important because now when we come to verse 14, the Lord God said unto the serpent, it is still Satan at the end of the day who has to give account to God. Satan is often looked at by cartoons and the world as if he is an equal with God. Right, we see the little standoffs, and right, and I've seen memes of, you know, depiction of the devil with the red skin and the uh, devil horns and, and the tail and the whole thing, right? And then a, an image of what someone thinks Jesus looked like, and then, like they're going locked in head to head, right? Like they're equal. There is no putting them together. Satan himself is a created being. If you are a created being, it means you are not self-dependent. 
It means you depend on something else. Because without something else, you wouldn't have even existed. Everything that is created. From the angelic world, the fallen angels, to you and I, and every little bug or amoeba you might ever find is dependent upon the Lord God for existence. And so when we find the Lord God now speaks to the serpent, He does not ask the serpent a question. He speaks. He tells him how it's going to be. And we have to understand that God, even in the middle of what seems to be such a chaotic chapter, as literally sin and chaos enters into the, to the world where things were good and in order, God is still very much in control. God has not lost control in chapter 3. He's not reeling. He's not going backwards. He's not wondering, what am I going to do? The Lord God speaks. And this is important for us to get. God does not change. The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field upon thy belly thou shalt go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Now notice this direct judgment. God questioned Adam and Eve. There's no questioning for the serpent. Only judgment was pronounced. Now, look at the second part of this. God questioned Adam and Eve about their sin, not because he did not know the answers. God knew that they had sinned. The moment that they sinned, he knows, right? But he does this to draw them to repentance and to teach them grace. Even even when God has to take His own children to the woodshed, it is an act of His grace. When He has to discipline His children, it is an act of His love for His children. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks about that. How this is part of, uh, of an assurance that we can certainly know that He loves us because He does chasten us as a good Father, our, as our Heavenly Father. But He allows them this opportunity to repent. And He teaches them what grace is. And all throughout the Bible, by the way, we find this sort of thrust of the grace of God to the glory of God. And we find His grace being poured out upon His people, His glory being demonstrated to His people, so that then His people would, by God's grace, be gracious and glorify God for who He is. And this is woven all throughout the Scriptures, and we see it especially here as we look. God... He would have been just the moment that they sinned to immediately thrown them away forever. Start all over. Let's make a new one, right? Instead, what he does is he offers them this chance. They do not, however, repent in this moment or in this hour. And now he comes to the serpent. The serpent, so known as the devil, has no place for repentance. For he has already fallen long before this and has no lesson of grace given to him. I've been asked before, can Satan get saved? I don't believe so. I don't believe so because nowhere in the Scripture do we find an attempt for him trying to get things right. We only ever find him doing what Satan is. And the word is the idea of adversary. He is one who is always against. From the very beginning, that is who he is. He is against God and he is against God's people. And we're going to see that as we get into verse 15. So y'all hold on. Now that's important for us to know because the devil has already fallen and there is... No return. There's no going back for him. There is no redeemer for Satan or his fallen angels. However, what God is doing here is he's about to show in verse 15 is that while there is no hope for the fallen angels, while there is no hope for Satan, 
his demonic horde. There is hope for fallen man. What is that? It's grace. It's the grace of God. That though man has rebelled against him, because, notice this, and this is going to get a, a little deep for about half a second, all right? But bear with me here. The angelic world, including Lucifer himself, right? Also known as Satan or the devil, right? He was an angelic being. He was created to worship God, to glorify God, to serve God. But notice, man, only man, was made as what we're told, imago Dei, in the image of God. Angels were not made in the image of God. Man was. What was the peak point of creation? It was not the angels. It wasn't the the billions times billions of galaxies. It was man. Formed out of the dust of the ground that God formed Himself and as if it were face to face then breathes the breath of life and makes Him a living, eternal soul. This should show us our worth as mankind, but as well as the intricacies of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a human. And and that God then now looks, because we are His image bearers, that He desires to redeem us. Grace is being offered, but not for the devil. Satan and man, there's a couple of parallels though, but the endings are different. Satan, created being. Things are going good. Rebels against God. Cast down or cast out of the presence of God. Right? And guess what? For him, there's no return. There's no hope for return. There's no redemption. There's no mediator for Satan. There's no reconciliation for Satan. There's there's no forgiveness. It's gone. Adam, or man, if you will. Mankind. Made. and Things are good. Things are going great. A perfect place, seemingly in a perfect condition, but the ability to sin and therefore does sin, rebels against God, is now fallen. And then, like Satan and the demonic, are then cast out from the presence of God. But guess what? God offers to mankind grace to return. Not by us being able to come to God, but instead that God Himself would come to man. Notice even in this passage, what happens when man sins? They run. They retreat from God. But what does God do? He comes after man. What do we find throughout the rest of the Bible? The beautiful scarlet thread of pointing to the fact that Jesus, God in the flesh, the Son of God, the second person of the triune, holy God of of all of eternity, is going to not not just make a way for man to get to God, but rather He's going to be the God who comes to man. To die for man. So that he is the mediator, the bridge, the one who brings man to God and God to man. Because only God can do such, but it has to be done in this fleshly body. This is why the incarnation is important. This is why this whole chapter is so important to all of Scripture. And even to our walk to understand who God is and what He has done for us. Now, let's get to the twofold serpent here. He's dealing with the serpent. He calls him the serpent a couple of times here. And we had seen the same phrase serpent in verse number 1 of chapter 3. Selhammer writes, Whereas the snake had been crafty, he is now cursed. The most cursed of the animals. It is his curse that distinguishes him above all the livestock and all 
the wild animals. The fall did not only bring a curse upon sinful man, but upon the creation itself, all living things. What Adam is about to call his wife in a few short verses over in verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now that's dealing, of course, with with mankind. But what we see is that the fall does not just affect Adam. It affects Eve. It affects their kids because their kids, you know what they're going to do? One of them is going to kill the other one, murder the other one. It's not going to go good. As a matter of fact, even their descendants just a few generations later are going to be so wicked that God says, eh, we're going to send a flood, right? So we see how quickly it goes. And sin always does affect much more than what we realize. Sin always does not just affect ourselves. At times we may seem that way, but it has lasting effects at times and it has rippling effects that destroy. Now, with this, Satan himself was not a literal serpent, but rather used the beautiful serpent in the garden as a tool to deceive Eve. Here, to some degree, what we find is a first demonic possession or satanic possession. We see that throughout the Scripture, there are times where this takes place. And by the way, it still takes place today. Um, There is much mystery about the spiritual realm and spiritual warfare and things. But I want you to know that there is certainly demonic warfare taking place all the time. And I believe of one of, of two ways. There is certainly demonic oppression, which is this sort of spiritual dark, darkness that comes against believers. It brings about distraction, division, discouragement, many of these different things. But there is, well, what is possession? We find this throughout the Scriptures, especially in the Gospels. There was a lot of possession. Yet anyone ever read the Gospels and go, how come they had so many possessed people in one little region, Right? Israel's not that big of a land, right? I mean, we're not, we're not talking a, a huge place. And even just in the small regions where Jesus is, and, and there, it seems like every, a walk around a corner, there's a leper, and then there's someone who's possessed. I believe in that time, there was certainly a fervor for awaiting the Messiah, but there was also this demonic fervor of doing everything possible to wreak havoc, to bring about distractions, to do so especially while the Messiah is walking the earth. However, what Jesus would do is He would go and He would cast out uh, demons and, and many things. And notice that even the demonic at one point in time that we have recorded, and more than likely this has happened numerous and other times, did not just uh, afflict people, but as well there's uh, the group of demons and they say, we're legion, we're many. And they say, well, cast us over them swine. What does Jesus do? He says, right, we run down the hill. That's, you're welcome. That's free tonight. Yeah. And then they're gone. Dead. But here's what we see. I believe firmly that here, what was once a beautiful serpent is now being used for spiritual evil things. We have to be careful because spiritually, Satan does not always use the things that look so evil. Notice that every, every time you turn on your television, right? You watch a commercial and then all of a sudden, there's a homosexual couple. What's playing in the background? Soft jazz music. You know why? Because pretty much everybody's okay with soft jazz music. It's a sunshiny day. Things are going good. But then, bam, 
all of a sudden, and you go, wait a minute, right? I said, yeah. How, how about this? I've never seen a beer commercial that goes, we want to tell you in the next 30 seconds about the dangers of alcoholism, and then please go to your local food line and purchase your next pack. No. What do they do? Everyone is enjoying themselves, having a great time, and it seems like this is good. If people are smiling, right? There was a song from back when I was younger. If it makes me happy, right? Why? Why? I mean, why, why, does it, why, why would it be considered bad is the idea? That's what the world thinks. If it makes me feel good, if it makes me happy. Satan uses things, certainly, that don't look evil. He often comes disguised as, as what we're referred to as an angel of light. Remember, he was a beautiful creature himself at one point in time. Now, how many of y'all like snakes? No? All right, give me one second. No, no, right? <laughs> We're out, right? Now, most folks don't like snakes, right? I, I don't really like them myself, per se, but I do see some beauty in some of them. But here, notice this. Before we get to sin, what do we find? There's nothing that is causing Adam and Eve to be afraid of anything. E- even the very first thing that they're afraid of is God himself. Why? Because they've sinned. And they had every right to be afraid of him then. Matter of fact, they should have been afraid of him then. But they weren't afraid of snakes. And you guys know what else was walking around the Garden of, of Eden? Tyrannosaurus Rex? Big old everything else that was there? Giant-sized things. And guess what? They weren't afraid. Why? Because there was no death. There was no sin. There was no fear. There was no shame. Satan uses something that they would have been accustomed to. This is not the first thing, it's not the first time that Adam and Eve have seen a serpent. They've seen him before. As a matter of fact, if we remember in Genesis 2, God brings animals to Adam to name. He's seen creatures coming, two by two, if you will. Male and female, male and female. This is how he knows, I, I'm, something's, I need a wife. And God says, yes, you do. That's why I brought him there. Here you go. Here's your wife. This is important. The devil will take something that seems beautiful. And what happens is now something that was meant to be beautiful, meant to be enjoyed, meant to be known, is now feared. God who Adam and Eve were able to have sweet fellowship with, is now the most fearsome thing in Adam and Eve's life. This serpent, who just moments before the fall was a perfectly normal, natural creature who's hanging around this tree, and they're even having a conversation, and that doesn't even seem out of the ordinary to them. Now, to you and I, is loathsome and fearsome. We go from having fellowship with a serpent to now. Now we're against, and he's against us, is the idea of this curse we see. John R. Rice here. Um, good to break out with John R. Rice sometimes, I guess. The serpent was the most intelligent of all animals. Now he is the most cursed. 
And the serpent enjoyed the fellowship of Adam and Eve in the garden uh, until Satan possessed him and used him as a tool for sin. Now there is enmity between man and the snake more than between man and any other beast. And tonight, I didn't have to do much of a poll to see if there's enmity between people and serpents or snakes. A natural animosity. If there was, how about this? Even just a regular old black snake ain't done nobody no harm. If a six-foot one decided it was just going to fall out of the ceiling and start going up the aisle, right? We, we might just have some Baptist move in this place, amen? We might just see a move, like the Mississippi Squirrel Revival. If I knew that's what it takes, no. no. But you think, naturally, what is the instinct? Fear? Probably some screaming, some fainting, maybe some gunshots? I don't know. But it's not going to be a good response, is it? Because now there's a natural fear. A natural fear. You know something? The great thing about having a new heavens, new earth and things is one day we'll be restated to a place where not only will there be no more sin, no more death, no more separation, but there will be no more fear of things that we were never meant to be afraid of. And here, Satan uses what we know. He uses what God has given, what God has said, what God has done. And he doesn't deny all of it. Rather, he twists enough of it to make his own wicked, evil creation. Furthermore, the KD commentator writes about this. The proof, therefore, that the serpent was merely the instrument of an evil spirit does not lie in the punishment itself, but in the manner in which the sentence was pronounced. And here's the key part here. When God addressed the animal and pronounced a curse upon it, this presupposed that the curse had regard not so much to the irrational beast as to the spiritual tempter, and that the punishment which fell upon the serpent was merely a symbol of his own. The punishment of the serpent corresponded to the crime. And it exalted itself above the man, and therefore upon its belly it should go, and dust it shall eat all the days of his life. There is nothing in this world that is not touched by sin. There is nothing in this world and all of creation that is not affected by sin now. But the great news for you and I is that there is not one of us who has also not been touched by the grace of God. There was plenty of grace in your life before you got saved. Think about the grace that kept you and got you and kept you alive <laughs> to even to get to the day that you got saved. It's grace. It's mercy. It's who God is. Not a one of us deserved it. But from the very beginning, from the very first sin, that's what we see and that's who we see God is, was, is always to be and that's what He does. Sorensen writes about this, about this passage. He says, God reacted by cursing the serpent, and by extension, the devil. The serpent was consigned to slither upon its belly thereafter. Implicit is how that was not the case prior to the fall. It might be also inferred that all animals of creation were affected by the curse, but the serpent was cursed above them all. I have a little side note here for you, not included, but the world before the fall and the flood was more than likely pretty well different. The things that we don't know about the pre-flood world typically far outnumber the things that we know about the current world. 
things changed, and they changed drastically. The moment that sin came in, everything changed, right? We went from Adam and Eve being naked and not knowing it to now they're still naked, but now they know it and something's all wrong about it. Now they're hiding from God. Now they're covered in fig leaves. Now things that they used to not be afraid of, now they shrink back away from. And this would go on and on and on. However, it could be implied that the serpent as well did not look like today's snakes. Nevertheless, the point is the same. There are some today who make the argument that maybe the the snakes or serpents at this time used to have little arms or something like that, and then from this time, they were resigned to only be able to crawl on their, on their belly. It's quite possible. I, I tend to believe that more than likely they did change, certainly as a, as a symbol to show the gravity of sin, the gravity of the curse, and as a reminder as well, not just the curse against the serpent and Satan, but to show that we now live in a completely sin-affected, sin-cursed world. God has always left these things as teaching things for us. Anyone ever seen a rainbow? You know when they first had a rainbow? (laughs) When God put it there. He says, it's going to be my sign. And notice, God does these things for a reason. He does it to teach man. Now, there is much mystery and there is much unknown. At the end of the day, this truth is the same, is that everything changed the moment that sin came into the world. Everything. And it did not change for the better. No matter what Satan would tell you and lead you to believe, sin is never a good thing. Disobedience is never right. Lying is never good. Cheating is never good. Stealing is never good. It's not good. Furthermore, now God has favor, or for, excuse me, now God has forever put the symbol, the accursed serpent, to show that the earth itself is under a curse because of sin. And to remind us that Satan himself, the old master serpent and dragon, will be put in the bottomless pit one day. The snake becomes a symbol of sin for all mankind to see and of the judgment of God on sin. That's John R. Rice there, wise man for that. We see that now you and I, well, especially y'all, <laughs> who really don't like snakes. Why? Because if we really think about it, it's a much greater sign of something else. Isn't it? You know, so and by the way, you in Carroll County are not the only culture that has a natural fear of snakes. You know who else does? Nearly every other one. But there's many others, though, who have the opposite effect. There's a worship of serpents, snakes. You know why? Because in pagan cultures... There's no difference between just being called a pagan culture and being a Satan worshiper. We don't like quite going that far because it makes us uncomfortable and makes us sound mean. But to be a pagan idolater is to worship, well, if you're not worshiping God, right? It's demonic. It's devilish. And this is why we should not be so upset at those who have never heard the gospel. Rather, we should be heartbroken enough to do whatever it would take to get the gospel to them. There are people who are going to die and go to hell because they worship these things. They worship the creation. They worship the creature and not the creator. Their minds are darkened and they think because they're sincere in their pagan idolatry that they'll somehow get right to the tree of life, but little do they know that they have eaten of the tree of disobedience against God and they are plunged into death. Now these snakes here today, serpents, and 
even beyond just the serpent, but everything that we're afraid of now today reminds us of sin. Reminds us that things are not the way they're supposed to be. But knowing that it's not the way it's supposed to be tells me as a believer that one day it's going to be the way it's supposed to be. But you must be in Christ for that. Now, the second thing we want to look at tonight, and this is probably about as far as we'll get, and that's okay, because that's what I planned on. The devil. That old serpent. Look at this. David Guzik writes, As a physical serpent is going to be crawling on its belly with dust to eat, so it is with Satan. This is true of the serpent as an animal, but it is also true of Satan. To eat dust has the idea of total defeat. God's judgment on Satan is for him to always know defeat. He will always reach for victory, but always fall short of it. That should bring us some hope. Satan has always tried to climb higher than what he should be. He's always falling. Notice that we only find throughout the Bible Satan falling, falling, falling. And one day, cast into a lake of fire. We see that he is already a defeated foe. We find that Satan, though he might have a few battles against his enemy, won in the cross at and in Christ, he is defeated. And we're going to see that in verse 15. Though Satan might bruise a heel, his head is crushed. He's fully and finally one day going to be destroyed forever and forever. Never to be able to torment God's saints again. Never to rise up against God again. The idea of this as well that we see dust to eat is that of, of total defeat and a total submission. There's nothing more humiliating. I want to read for you one of these verses um, that talks a little bit about this. Isaiah 65. Now, at this point in Isaiah 65 and 66, we're dealing a lot with uh, kingdom and the new heavens and new earth and a lot of this eternal things, which is great. But Isaiah 65, verse 25 here tells us, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. Now, let me ask you this. Do you ever find a wolf and a lamb feeding together? Nope. You find a wolf feeding on lambs. Don't find them eating together. But then he says, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. Y'all ever see a lion do that? When I watch National Geographic, Discovery Channel, all that stuff, you know what you see a lion do? When I watch Lion King, you know what you watch? They're chasing down some game. They're getting some meat, right? They're, they're, they're going to the Texas Roadhouse of the Prairie, and they're getting their steak is always rare, all right? <laughs> hey, that's something right there. I'm, I, I do the same. That's okay. If you don't like it, we'll talk later. But <laughs> Give me that cow still mooing. <laughs> but then notice this. And dust shall be the serpent's meat. Even after all things have gone so well, you know what? The serpent's not going to be biting nobody, eating nobody. It says, because they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, saith the Lord. Now, this is great news for us. The Bible tells us, Romans 16, verse 20, how in Jesus that we have and get to share in the victory over Satan. It says, Romans 16, 20, 
and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. That sounds pretty good, don't it? To know that though I might take a lump or two, and I take most of my lumps in my own life because of my own sin, let's be real. We try to blame the devil for it. He might be swinging, but I'm the, I'm the one putting my guard down. That's why I feel the blows, right? He's swinging away, but if we keep our guard up, if we have our armor, we're not going to feel that. But it's when we're not prepared for the spiritual battle. And by the way, you have entered into spiritual battle and known about it the moment you trusted Christ. Spiritual battle is on, and it's going to be on until the day that you die. No longer can Satan take your soul, but he would certainly love to take your joy, your assurance, your confidence, most of which, of what I see the church struggling with the most today, Satan has taken. Not because he's so much more powerful and stronger, or that he's more powerful and stronger than the Bible, and then preaching, and church, and Christ's church, but because we've let our guard down. We have not, we have not put on the armor, and we have barely even held up our sword, let alone swing that thing. Then, Revelation 20, verse 10 tells us this. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. What some people tend to think is that the devil gets to rule hell forever. Some people think that the devil gets to be in charge of hell, and that he's the one doing the tormenting. No, no, no. As a matter of fact, one day he's going to be tormented forever and forever. The idea of torment is this absolute judgment, wrath of God being poured out. It is to be continuous. It's not stopping. It's not going to stop. There will be no reprieve. There will be no reprieve for Satan, his fallen angels, his demonic influencers, there will be no reprieve as well for those who do not trust Christ. There will be no annihilationism where they just, you know, die and get wiped out and don't have to worry about any more torment. Nor is there purgatory where they get to go serve a little bit of time and they get to come out of there, right, for good behavior. It's not there. It's not in this book. You and I get to sing the sweet words Amazing grace. When we've been there 10,000 years in Maine, when that happens, we start raising our hands and we're, yeah. We should, shouldn't we? When they've been there 10,000 years, it's still just as hot, just as dark, just as tormented as it will be 10 million years beyond That's how big God's grace is for us. Here's what else happens. Enmity then is placed between the serpent, his seed, and the woman, her seed, for all time. It says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This begins the constant struggle, battle, conflict until one day Satan will face ultimate defeat. And those of us in Christ, the seed, the woman, 
promised Messiah will have ultimate victory. The seed of the serpent, those who are unfaithful, unfruitful, rebellious in their nature. The seed of the woman, first of all, points to Christ. But secondly, points to all those who are in Christ, those who are the seed of faith. McGee writes, The most prominent thought is not the ultimate victory that would come, but the long-continued struggle. This verse reveals the fact that now there is to be a long struggle between good and evil. And it is not Satan versus Jesus seeing who's going to win the arm wrestle. It's done. It wasn't even a competition. And what we just celebrated this past Sunday was a full and final victory where Jesus has gone and, and openly shown Himself victorious over all those who have ever been against Him. And one day He will do the same and have full and final victory over every enemy. But verse 15 tells us that He will have His head bruised. The idea of bruise is the word crushed, even overwhelmed. Sorensen writes, the Hebrew word translated as bruise has a sense ranging from crushing to striking, as a snake does. How ironic that the serpent is going to be crushed much like a snake. The idea of he's going to be stricken, struck down, like a snake would might bite at your boot heel, your boot heel can still crush. And what we're going to see at the cross is that though Satan may bruise a heel, his head is crushed. Now I'm going to stop here for the night. We're going to get in next week to what the idea of seed means and the two different seeds. I want to tell you, come back next Wednesday, all right? I'll just say that because I want, to, want you to be here. But if we can get Verse 15, if you can understand and wrap your brain around verse 15 of Genesis 3, you can understand the rest of the Bible. You can understand the rest of human history. You can understand what the cross is for. You can understand and put pieces together. And it will hopefully, Lord willing, if you get it, change the way you read the Bible, understand the Bible, and understand yourself and understand who God is. And we will see all the more God's grace in our life that is found especially those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus. I want to thank you guys um, tonight for your patience, and I hope you have learned something or gotten something from this. And I, I want to know, I want, to, want you to know this as well. Tonight, if you get anything, it might just be this. When we look at this account in Genesis 3, as tragic as the fall of man is, there is also yet on the other side of that tragedy that man has caused the beauty of God's grace that is now extended to mankind. Not just once, not just twice, but over and over and over and over and over again, ultimately culminating in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. Grateful that we can gather, we can study your word, we can see these things. And Lord, certainly, we live in a fallen world. We have fallen natures. We're fallen creatures. But God, we thank you for your grace that saves us, that restores us, redeems us. Your grace that keeps us and sustains us. And one day it will be your grace that leads us home to you. Help us to uh, walk by faith, Lord, to trust you. And Lord God, that you would use us. Help us to dwell and to meditate on your word. And Lord, that we might uh, seek to be obedient to you, Lord. 
We thank you for this time and go with us now. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a blessed